When I was growing up, I had an uncle named Norman. He was a kindly gentleman with a huge heart and a love for people. Not a believer initially. But in time, God opened his eyes and Norman was born of God and became a member of my church in Pennsylvania. Well, Norman had a son whom he named Norman Jr., which to us nephews growing up with the family was always confusing. The adults would talk about Norman did this and Norman did that and Norman went there and Norman is coming over this afternoon to go fishing or whatever. And we kids would always be in a quandary as to which Norman everyone was talking about. Well, it didn't take the family long to figure a way to distinguish between the two Normans, saying Norman Jr. was no help to us kids because we thought of ourselves as the juniors of the family. The solution was to call Uncle Norman Big Norman and Cousin Norman we called Little Norman, which turned out to be a rather an oxymoron because Little Norman <laughs> was two feet taller than Big Norman, big and burly. Nonetheless, for us kids, it learned to distinguish the two Normans by the epithet big or little, depending on which one was being referred to. The same mentality seemed to stick with me when I was growing up in the Sunday school and learned about the Bible books bearing the name John. We had John's Gospel and then three letters written by John titled 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, respectively. But we were taught rightly that all four books of the Bible and the Revelation to boot were written by the Apostle John. What is more, the Gospel of John, no less than the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd epistles written by John, was also a letter but called a gospel account. So kids being kids, we developed our own way of discerning between the Bible books bearing John's name, using again the epithets big and little. This was particularly helpful in Bible drills. You all kids remember Bible drills? We used to do that in our Sunday school. Person would say, ready? All swords closed. All swords up, and everybody would hold their Bible closed, hold it up. And they would say, John 4.13, by which the Bible drill person meant the Gospel of John. We kids would think, Big John, Big John. And that became very helpful. If the team leader said, 1 John 4.13, because invariably a student would miss the distinction and turn to the Gospel of John. But we had the secret code. <laughs> Big John, little John. So when they had, we would say to our friends, little John. And they would turn to 1 John 4.13. So that's how I came up with the title for today's message, Introducing Little John which is not to be confused with the little John of Robin Hood fame. Clara May and I were talking about that uh, this week when we were doing the bulletin. 
Everyone knows about that. Yet there's one similarity, uh, I will have to say. Little John of Robin Hood fame was a giant of a man, tall, broad-shouldered, big-boned, and extremely strong, so the name Little belied his stature and his significance. When I come to the book of 1 John, the first epistle of John, which I have named Little John, it is a giant of a book. Not in the number of pages, not in the number of chapters that are therein, but in the concepts the doctrine, the thoughts for daily living in a wicked world. What a powerful, powerful book. It is written in the simplest of Greek for the common man to be able to read in its day. And it nonetheless contains some of the deepest and most soul-searching truths ever penned by the Apostle John. I think that all of us, when we think about it, will be challenge by what John wrote. We will be warmed by his genuine love for the Christian community. He's the granddaddy of the apostolic writers. And I think we will also be equipped to live for God in a hostile world that is filled with the spirit of antichrist, which is very much our day. As we do in all introductions, we need to look firstly at the author of Little John. The John acquainted with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry is the author of this book. I want you to look at some of the similarities between Big John and Little John, between the Gospel of John that you know in your book, your Bible, and this first epistle. For example, John 1, verse 1, verse 14 reads, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The opening verses of Big John, the Gospel of John. What do we read in 1 John 1 verse 1? That which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and at our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Do you see any similarity there? It gets better. John 3, 19 through 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John 3, verse 19 and following. Now look at verse John 1, verse 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with the one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Or again, John 8, verse 44. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and the religious teachers of his day. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, 
for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Compare that with 1 John 3, verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Again, John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Then 1 John 4, verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only, his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And then one more. John 5, verse 36 and following. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. And then 1 John 5, verse 9 through 11. We accept God's testimony, but God's testimony, we accept, excuse me, man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. 1 John 5, verse 9 through 11. Now, I think you can see the parallels here. These parallels demonstrate that the same author who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote the epistle of 1 John. Similar, very similar language. And additionally, the contrasting style used points to the same author. Namely, the contrast between light and darkness, life and death. Truth and lies, love and hate, God and the devil, Christ and Antichrist. Now, of course, there are other Bible authors that write on these themes. But John's style in dealing with them is unique to him. He pits one against the other. And this contrast serves to accentuate the radical differences in the comparisons. That's an intentional thing that John does. Very polemic, very argumentative in the sense of trying to prove the truth of the gospel. I love it. You can tell that John who wrote 1 John is the same John who wrote the John's gospel. And we need to know that. However, in the writings of John, there is uh, an intentional attempt at non-disclosure. What do I mean by that? Well, it's noteworthy that unlike some of the other biblical authors, John does not name himself in his gospel record, nor in any of the three epistles that he wrote, but he repeatedly names himself in the fourth book bearing his authorship. That's the book of Revelation. 1 verse 1 of the Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. 
who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. In other texts, same chapter, verse 4, verse 9, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 8, John, 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 he mentions himself as the author of the Revelation. What biblical scholars have done is to compare the Greek use, the style of writing, the vocabulary preferred, the uniformity of information, the themes referenced in all the books, and they have concluded that the author named in the Revelation as John is none other than the same author who penned the other books. This isn't rocket science. This is just being a good student of making comparisons and saying, well, this is here and this is here. And we don't find this in any other author of the New Testament. You thought uh, perhaps that, that uh, studying the Bible was just going verse by verse and, and trying to figure out the spiritual meaning, and that's very true. But when you're dealing uh, theologically with books of the Bible and you have to prove that something was written in, uh, for the canon of Scripture by the Holy Spirit, moving men of old to speak and to write, the word of God, then you have to dig a little deeper and demonstrate how these truths came about. Samuel Clemens utilized his own name to write serious accounts, but he used the pen name Mark Twain to write his fictitious accounts, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Prince and the Pauper, he used Mark Twain. He adopted the name from the love for the Mississippi Riverboat captains who would call out for a report from the sailors on the depth of the river. They would call out Mark Twain. That is, two fathoms deep or about 12 feet of water. The shallowest acceptable death, uh, depth able to displace the riverboats. Mr. Clemens also used other pen names. He used the name Sir Louis de Conte to write Joan of Arc, chapter, or year 1896. He also used the pseudonym Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass for three humorous pieces that he wrote to Keokuk Post. Now I've said all that to say this. The investigative reporters of the day were able, they were able to figure out the true author of the works bearing the pseudonames. And they did that by comparing vocabulary, style, grammar, content, which revealed this must be Samuel Clemens as the author of the work. Because every one of us has a particular style if we're doing any kind of writing or speaking. George, if you read some of his papers, pretty much similar style. My sermons, pretty much same style. And we get into that routine uh, because we're comfortable with it and we found that to be effective. So John was among the select trio, Peter, James, John, whom Jesus permitted to see his glory in the transfiguration. Why does John only describe himself in hushed tones? The disciple whom Jesus loved. You will find that repeatedly in the Gospel of John, which, by the way, we will be getting back to 
on Sunday nights when we finish our video series. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, who's that? That's John 13, verse 23. Why would he write it that way? Perhaps humility. I think he was a humble man. The special regard Jesus had for him and he for Jesus. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Does that mean Jesus didn't love the other disciples? No. It just means he had a special regard for John. Guess what? John was the only disciple there at the crucifixion, at the foot of the cross. There's something special about that. There really is. The disciple to whom Jesus committed the care of his mother at his death. There's something special about that. So John can write the disciple whom Jesus loved. There is also the possibility that when John wrote his gospel, the church, and especially its leaders, the apostles, were undergoing severe persecution. So it was just prudent not to announce yourself by writing your name to the New Testament documents, which came later. All these reasons and more point to the Apostle John as the author of Little John, and by the way, when they were establishing the canon of Scripture, the books which they believed were inspired by God that would go into the Bible, they never disputed the authorship of Little John or any of John's writings. Secondly, what were the circumstances, the date, the times for writing this letter? Well, the circumstances are this. Christ's people, and in particular his apostles, had fallen into very hard times. Very hard times. Bible books dated earlier indicate great persecution and trial for the Christians. Now Jesus had forewarned his disciples, saying this, Blessed are you when, notice, <coughs> excuse me, notice he says when, not if. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, <clears throat> falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew 5 verse 11 and 12. Again, John 16 verse 2. Jesus speaking, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They would do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. John 16, verses 2 through 4. Or Paul writing to Timothy said, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 and 13. Paul himself, you remember, was imprisoned in a Roman cell when he wrote this. 
about 66 AD or 67. He had also written 10 years earlier to the church of Corinth, we are hard pressed, he writes, on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and following. By the time Paul's ministry had begun, Paul's ministry, Luke gives us this bit of history. Luke writes, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Acts 12, 1-4. You know the story. God miraculously rescued Peter from this impending execution and he was able to flee to safety. Peter himself wrote his first letter somewhere between A.D. 60 and 62. And in that treatise he said, Dear friends, do not be surprised that the painful trial you are suffering as though some strange things were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not know or obey the gospel of God? 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and following. What I want you to see in all of this is that Jesus predicted trouble and persecution, even death, for his disciples. And the biblical books authored by the apostles indicate that the persecution began early on and it continued through the first century. The Roman emperors who saw themselves as God did their worst to hunt down, arrest, torture, and kill the apostolic leaders of the church. Did you know that virtually every apostle, with the exception of John, every apostle with the exception of John, was executed, dead, gone, by the time John wrote his gospel and his three letters and the revelation. The persecution, though often 
instigated by the Jews in hatred of the gospel, was nonetheless sanctioned by Nero, whose reign supported the execution of many church leaders. Emperor Nero. What a guy. James, the brother of Jesus, author of the book in our Bible which bears his name, was arrested by Ananias, the high priest, and escorted to the pinnacle of the temple to renounce Jesus as the Messiah and deny his faith. Instead, he proclaimed the gospel boldly from the heights, and the Pharisees pushed him off the tower. The fall broke both of his legs, being still alive. The crowd surrounded him and stoned him to death while he prayed for his murderers. A.D. 63. Barnabas was dragged by a rope around his neck through the city of Salamis on the island of Cyprus to the outskirts of the town where he was burned to death, A.D. 64. In the eighth year of Nero's reign, John Mark, who had established a church in Alexandria, Egypt, as well as other northern territories of Africa, was dragged through the cobblestone of streets by flesh hooks like some piece of beef to be hung up. He died of his wounds in A.D. 64. The first organized persecutions of Christians occurred in A.D. 66 when Nero blamed them for the burning of Rome and had Christians impaled on crosses painted with bitumen and tallow and sulfur and lit on fire to illuminate the streets of Rome at night, used them as human tortures. Peter was crucified head down on a cross in A.D. 69 at the age of 70. Paul appealed to Caesar in his defense before the Jews of Jerusalem and was subsequently sent to Rome where he remained in prison for nearly two years. And from prison he wrote to Timothy, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, and now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He was executed by beheading, beheading by the sword, order from Nero, A.D. 69. And by the way, that was considered a merciful execution, and it was granted to him because he was a Roman citizen, they didn't crucify Roman citizens. They didn't stone them to death. They didn't allow any other way of execution a Roman citizen except by beheading with the sword. Swift, powerful, quick, but he was died, killed as a martyr. Andrew, brother of Peter, was crucified in Petros, a city of Achaia, because he had converted the governor's wife to Christ through preaching, A.D. 70. Thomas, missionary to the East Indies, where the where his inroads with the gospel caused the people to renounce their worship of the sun god, while the heathen priests secured his execution from the king. And they tortured him with red-hot plates and then burned him in a furnace, A.D. 70. By the way, the Muslims do that with Christians today. They're burning them in hot iron cages. Matthew was staked to the ground in Ethiopia by pagan priests, and beheaded with an axe, A.D. 70. Theadius, Simon the Zealot, Matthias, 
the replacement for Judas, were all executed A.D. 70. Luke was hung from an olive tree in Greece, A.D. 93. Emperor Domitian carried on where Nero left off. These were the circumstances of John's day in which he wrote, Every apostle of Christ and many, many of the co-workers, Luke, Mark, Timothy, Silas, Barnabas, Nicanor, one of the first deacons, were all executed, all gone by the time John sat down to write John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. They're all gone. Very unique. Jared has a picture for us uh, on the date and time. He wrote his works about 97 A.D. because he was banished to uh, an island called Patmos. This was a Roman um, penal colony located on a small island in the Aegean Sea. I think of it much like, uh, do we have that up here? I think of it much like Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay, right? Domitian sent him to this island, this penal colony, where he remained for two years. And while he was there is when he wrote the revelation in our Bible and the Gospel of John and the three epistles, all written during that period of time. He was released by Emperor Nerva after Domitian and reinstated as bishop pastor of Ephesus where he died in peace under the reign of Trajan at the age of 80. Long, longest living apostle, last of the living apostles. And what penmanship came off of his pen, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Now thirdly, what is the purpose of the letter? You know, when I write something, you, you, you should have a purpose in mind, right? You should have a plan as to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, it was firstly to confront error and false teaching, which by this time, first century, is pretty rampant, pretty rampant. One of the leading heresies of the first two centuries of the church was that of Gnosticism, which I'm going to deal with in depth later. But the Gnostics took their name from one of the Greek words for knowledge, Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, Gnosis. The G is silent. One of the words for knowledge. This group of people believed all material things are evil. Everything material. Your body, your house, your clothing, everything material is evil. Since God is spirit, that's good. God is good. God is spirit. And so salvation to the Gnostics was ultimately to escape the body. Do away with the material. And this was done not by faith 
in Christ, but through the application of special knowledge. You just have to, you, you have to be a person in the know. And since they thought of material as being evil, they denied that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he had a material body. Also, since the body was evil, it was to be treated harshly. So the Gnostics were ascetics. Ascetics. They would deprive their bodies. They would deprive, they would have strange diets. They would com complete torture on themselves and so forth because material is not what you want to emphasize. But there was also this weird aberration about the Gnostics because they viewed the material as evil and not the breaking of God's law as being evil, the Gnostics lived a very licentious and hedonistic lifestyle. These heretics, John labeled correctly as being controlled by the spirit of Antichrist. Yeah, of course they're Antichrist because the New Testament teaches of Christ that he was God in the flesh. And they weren't going to have any of that. So John writes to confront the heresies concerning Christ. That This is, this is the uh, end of the first century. You know, it doesn't take long for the devil to throw in uh, thorns in the field of uh, where the wheat's growing. Remember that parable that Jesus told? And... Uh, the weeds grow up and they choke the, the, the wheat, the good stuff, make it rough on us. And that's exactly what was going on in the first century. The devil was sowing, sowing his seeds of evil among the apostolic teaching. So the first reason that John writes this little book is to deal with the, the heresies, the aberrations of the doctrine that they went after to defeat, if they could, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a second reason. They, he writes to comfort and to assure Christians of their security in Christ. I think you can imagine with all of the executions of the apostles, which took place in the years just preceding John's writings, the believers were very unsure of their own position before God. Why all this death in their history? What's going to happen to me? If this is salvation, who wants it? What is the test of a true believer? How do we know who is the enemy? Is there any security? in our faith, any assurance that we are going to be saved. Well, let me tell you that Little John is the book on Christian assurance. And it is the Bible book 
which lays out for believers how to live the Christian life in apostate times. You know, the church of today has become kind of the prom promulgators of a wimpy Christianity. That's our day. The me generation is all about itself. Me, myself, and I are the three most loved characters in the church family. We lament and whine and complain about the most trivial of things, while the blood of the martyrs cries out, Father, forgive them, which was the prayer on many of their lips as the world put them to death. They are, as the writer of Hebrews says, the world was not worthy of them. So let us endeavor as believers to stop looking upon the church as our little, little personal Play-Doh to shape as we want it to be, to suit our own likes and dislikes. And let us instead resolve to be committed to God's kingdom no matter what. And let me tell you, brethren, we're coming into hard times as God's people in America. It's never folly to follow after the Christ that we cannot lose by giving up the world that we cannot keep. Jesus taught, it's easier, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, well, who then can, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Good old Peter. He asked what the rest of the disciples were thinking. Because we read what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, not just to Peter. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. And the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. Matthew 19, verse 24 and following. So we're warned by Christ that we're going to come into hard times. And we have a book here written in our canon of scriptures to warn us to confront the heresies that we're going to face and are facing in our day, the hard times, how to live in an anti-Christ world, still loving God, still appreciative of all that he has done for us and will do for us, still trusting him even to the end, and the end may be 
horrendous for us, but in Christ we're safe in him. We need to be prepared for that. I know there are some churches that uh, preach a gospel of uh, fun and games. Everything joyful, everything glorious. And of course there is that aspect of Christianity. We also need to be realistic as we look into the mirror of God's word and see these warnings. First from Christ and then as the apostles pick up on it and include it in their writings as well. We need to see that there are people that hate us. There are people that hate the gospel. And they hate Christians. And they hate us enough to see us dead. I remember some years ago when there was a bombing in a church in Texas, I think it was. Some people protested about the bombing that took place and others protested, bring back the gladiators, bring back the lions. Meaning it was good that they were bombed. And we'd like to see more. Now that was years ago. Do you think that uh, ideology has fallen away by the wayside? No, it's more so in our own day. This morning, and I don't know if there's any religious attachment to Christians, but this morning and last night rather, there was another bombing in New York City. 25 people hit with shrapnel from a uh, pressure cooker bomb up uh, in Minnesota, I think it was, uh, a terrorist slashed people with a machete. The ideology of hate and wanting to kill non-believers, non-Islamic believers, it's there. It's in our country. We don't have to go looking for it. It's right out in the open, and they're proud of it. Are you ready to meet God in death? Say, well, I don't want to die. Well, I don't either. Not before my time. There's no such thing, however. But are you ready? Do you know Christ as Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this little book that's got big doctrine. I pray that you'll help us. As we get into the study more and more, get into the actual text, we're asking for the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit. I can't help but think, Lord, that what happened to your first century church was just the beginning of sorrows. It's the beginning of the birth pains, as you talk about, the end times of Christ's coming. Well, if it's the beginning, then there's worse to come. And I pray that you will make us ready, make us strong, make us faithful. I think of all the apostles and the co-workers and Mark and Luke and Silas and others all being executed for their faith. And we've lived in our country all the years of our life in pretty much peace and tranquility. And now as the day approaches for your return, we're seeing an escalation of violence and hatred towards God's people and towards people whom the terrorists think are God's people because we bear the name a Christian nation. So they don't know any different. They just kill as they come across. But I pray, Lord, that we will see that standing for the truth of the gospel 
is indicative of bringing hard times our way. But these people need the gospel in order to be brought to repentance and faith in the true God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, savior of sinners through the blood of Jesus. I pray that you will grant repentance and faith, help our country to come back around again to the days when Christianity was revered in our country, if not held by everybody. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for men like the Apostle John, who stood for the truth and revealed the evil that was in his day, that we might be comforted to know that God is in control. Bless thy word to our hearts. If we don't know Christ, give us a heart to know him, to love him, to repent of our sin. Our sin will get us quicker than any terrorist. Our sin condemns us to the terrors of hell and damnation unless we repent and come to know Christ. So there is a fate worse than death. And I pray that you will save us from it. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. For our own good, we pray. Amen.